and welcome to the Brookwood Life of the Mind podcast. Actually, today it's the Brookwood and Avalon Life of the Mind podcast. I am Sherry Walsh, assistant head of Brookwood School. I'm sitting here today with Kevin Davern, headmaster of Avalon School, the Avalon School, I should say. And we're here to talk a little bit about the tacit curriculum of, in particular, Avalon School. Um, because I've, I'm sort of the, the source of the podcast, um, I was struck by the way that the Avalon tacit curriculum affects my children. And that, that's my personal impetus for this conversation. Uh, but of course, it's possible to talk about the Brookwood tacit curriculum and, uh, and, and the schools together. Uh, so hi, Kevin. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Sherry. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Um, so in thinking about this too, like this notion of the tacit curriculum, this idea of um, the unspoken curriculum of the school kind of plays with um, the, the spoken curriculum in interesting ways. So if the Avalon School is, um, has or offers a kind of traditional liberal arts curriculum um, as its spoken curriculum, the personalities of the teachers, the um, content itself, the um, and, and various other aspects would would contribute to an overall sense of um, what is unspoken or unarticulated, but is very important in the the way that a school like Avalon forms young men. I'd agree with that. I'd tweak it a little bit. I say I think the the unspoken curriculum gets spoken about once in a while. True. Because at a certain point, especially boys. It comes out, why do I need this? Why is this important? And then it, it, the teacher needs to be able to articulate, this is important because of, uh, you need to be able to think clearly. There are certain things worth knowing because you have a soul and this matters, you know, or what have you. So it's not completely unspoken, but it's, it is the underpinning of the, the culture of the school as well as the uh, specific curriculum. Yeah, and some of it happens, I think, intentionally, and some of it happens... Um, in line with what is intentional, but beyond it. So if we're talking about something, I mean, I think about um, the personalities of the Struts, for example, as um, a source of um, a good sense of the vibe of the Avalon School, um, or um, having to do with um, with some of the, the way that school culture is established. I think, I think that's important. I think especially at a school like Avalon, the personality of the teachers is important. And um, my example is more um, sort of, um, I don't know, broad brush, right? You think about the, the big personalities of the Struts, uh, but there's also, I mean, it happens in all kinds of ways um, with, with the various teachers. I don't know, would you, would you say that, um, that this, this aspect of school life um, comes primarily from personnel? Uh, or would you say it comes primarily from the spoken curriculum? Or how would you talk about that? Maybe it's a synergy. Yeah, I think it's a chicken egg type of thing because the teachers that are attracted to come to work at Avalon have a sense of um, understanding of why we teach what we teach and why we do what we do in terms of working with the boys that they internalize a certain ethos of uh, true manliness or of how you treat others or what have you. So uh, you take the big personalities like the Struts, they're, they're, they, they naturally cotton to the uh, the specific types of things we do, and then they add their own oomph to those things. But it's hard to say. I, I also think that 
in our school, if, if you come as a young enough teacher, also it's reinforced by the conversations with the other teachers at the lunch table. Sure. Friday happy hours and... Uh, ah, very nice. And the uh, also working with the boys and hearing about other books and your own continuing reading and discussions of things too. So it really is a mm -hmm. chicken-egg synergy. Yeah, yeah. I think about pedagogy too. Um, a lot of what I learned from teaching in progressive independent schools was a lot of kind of whiz-bang pedagogy where um, you're setting up a lot of structures. And, and, and I think there's a value to that. I don't mean sure, to, yeah. um, to denigrate it. Um, but I feel like at a school like Brookwood or a school like Avalon, the teachers are doing so much that there isn't a lot of time to, I mean, there's certain events that happen and there are certain, um, there are certain lessons that are especially thought through, but I think a lot of the teaching is, relies more on the personality of the teacher than it would at a place where um, there are all these highly structured projects and that kind of thing. And I think sure. that's even more at Avalon than it is at Brookwood. I think that the girls groove more on projects and we make more. Um, but I think, I think that's that, true. You know, boys also, as a general rule, don't groove towards projects to the same degree. Although there's some exceptions, like Tom Tobin at Avalon has had great success with his Shakespearean videos. Mm -hmm. Where the boys really buy into that, and that's snowballed into a thing they look forward to every year. Yeah, that's but that's nice. the exception rather than the rule. I, I think some of it might be just necessity too, Sherry, because an Avalon teacher has to wear a lot of hats, and so you, <laughs> yeah, you, you're kind of um, you're kind of pulled in a lot of directions. Um, so I don't know, but it's hard for me to imagine any effective teaching that doesn't rely on the personal conviction of the teacher. Right. And that this is important, you know, yeah. like how important is it for a teacher to love his or her subject? Yeah. This particular book, you know, it's like a good infection. If someone really loves it, more people are likely to catch it. I wish they all mm -hmm. did. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> but um, I, th I think another thing as a teacher, you can't help but be conscious of the ones you're not reaching at any particular time. Right. right. That's, that's a painful reality that if you're, and as the more experienced the teacher you are and the more you're kind of taking in the students as opposed to just thinking about what you're going to say or what have you. The right. more aware you are, the ones you're not connecting with. Right, right. Uh, I mean, I think too yeah. about, I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. I think about somebody like Tom Tobin, um, whom, um, you know, the boys really respect. And then they see that he's excited about this book. And so sure. then they want to know what that is. And it's like, That's what right. would be, you know, what would be so exciting um, about this book and, um, and how... How can they interact with it in a way that um, that helps them also to have that excitement or to have their own excitement about something else? Um, but it, I think that's I think that's definitely true. Um, I think too of those studies that talk about um, how the um, the the kind of emotional temperature in the room is very important to the amount of learning that can happen. Um, and so if if boys feel seen and safe and free, um, they're more likely to be receptive to sure. the learning that's happening. I don't mean to get too, you know, sort of squishy no, um, about, about emotion, sure. but I think that there, I think that is important in terms of um, like receptivity to learning as opposed to a student who might be um, resisting in some way. I think there's a lot of truth to that. You need a certain kind of baseline of routine and uh, 
reasonable expectations, uh, so a certain comfort level where they're not filled with, uh, you know, anxiety or whatever. Right. On the other hand, you don't want them too comfortable either. Right. But within that kind of baseline, you want a certain spontaneity moments. Like, if, you know, when you read the book out or someone has a question or an objection or, or um, especially the classes that do tend more towards discussion, if there's a, if there's a, a disagreement handled properly, it's a real moment, you know, and... Uh, lends itself to the class being a real thing. It's great yeah. when that happens. You know, I think most experienced teachers wish it happened more. I know I do. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think too that, um, as you were saying, that as a teacher is more and more experienced, um, the teacher also learns to listen better and is a little bit more relaxed and less worried about right. what sure. he or she is sort of putting out there and more interested in, in what the students have to say about it. And then, of course, they're skilled to handle whatever it is that the students I say. That's true. You know, I had another thought. You mentioned Tom Tobin, who's a, a colleague I respect very much. But I remember him speaking at our faculty workshop years ago, and uh, he actually said something along the lines of, my authority as a teacher is a moral authority because I put in the work yeah. to prepare. And for and you talked about his class and how the boys uh, respect his class. But, you know, for example, when Tom teaches the Iliad, uh, he also does a book called uh, The Things They Carried mm -hmm. about uh, a young man in the Vietnam War. So a different attitude towards warfare. And he brings these things in because he's done the work. He's thought sure. about it. And, of course, he's a very insightful man. But, yeah. And I think that's the kind of thing mm -hmm. that... that it's kind of the, one of the underpinnings of a good, of what our impression of a good job teaching is. Yeah. Too. You know that, yeah. you, that as a craftsman, that you you're always thinking about how to make it better. Right. Rich McPherson always talks about this. Like you're always thinking, and it's true. I think any real teacher is always thinking about what he can or she can bring to their classes to make them better. Or what yeah. this can be, at. and also what this particular group mm -hmm. will cotton more right. towards this particular type That's of thing important. as you get to know their collective, mm -hmm. you know, personality and sense of humor and whatever. Yeah. I mean, I think about something like um, the Iliad and the things they carried. Um, the things they carried is a late 80s um, novel, actually, even doesn't seem like a novel, uh, by Tim O'Brien, a contemporary American writer um, who writes about Vietnam. Um, the... Um, the, the juxtaposition of those two texts is really interesting, too, for a student who may or may not um, feel invited in to the Iliad or feel like um, he has a, a kind of, I don't know, basis to understand, or even just like the language is difficult, or the, the, the fact that it's a poem makes it difficult in ways, or the mythology, it says something's difficult. Um, something like The Things They Carried is much more inviting of the student um, and it's also about storytelling. Um, when the Iliad, of course, is a story, but it also is about storytelling. You have you sure. know these long yeah. these long bits that are story um, being told in addition to um, you know the story itself. So it seems like that's a really nice juxtaposition um, to get people also to think about like what do you talk about when you talk about war. Um, and that's a lot about what the um, the Tim O'Brien does. So thinking about I and mean, having Tom work to structure, um, you know, the, the juxtaposition of those two texts. And, it, and if this is, um, is that 10th grade? Is that ninth grade? I'm not sure. It's 10th grade it's tenth in high grade. school. Okay. So there's a thread that goes through then across the years. That's right. Uh, because I know that my son Christopher, who's in ninth grade, is, um, has finished Henry V and um, did an in-class writing on visions of war. So, I mean, again, it's, it takes a kind of thematic life and moves through. And so that kind of crafting... 
is something that's um, that's especially strong and interesting. Yeah, speaking from the boys' perspective or teaching with boys' perspective, I would say that the language is the toughest of the things. I think just the archetypes, you don't have to be too much of a Jungian to kind of, mm -hmm. the boys naturally uh, cotton to the, 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 the adventure and the alien sure. uh, and the, the, the idea of uh, the clashing of personalities and courage and what have you, but it's the yeah. language is the trickiest thing. I, I think they, they, the imagery is really powerful and hooks them into, but yeah. But uh, it's interesting just how it all works. But I think Tom's example, how he sets it, is a really example of kind of, it's like we we're saying, what, that, what the tacit kind of sense of teaching, maybe not the curriculum, but, the, right. but uh, what a teacher should do shows itself well in Tom's classes. Yeah, that's interesting. And I think, too, of the, um, I mean, the way that the Iliad plays for the girls versus the boys is interesting, too. Because <laughs> there's, there's a lot about, um, you know, what a jerk. What is he doing? Plus, it's very um, gory. Uh, and yeah. Homer dwells on some of the gore. Yeah. And in fact, the boy, I, you know, I think it might accelerate through, but he's not offended by it. But mm -hmm. I think, you know. Right. No, and um, in fact, um, at, at Brookwood, and there are, um, in the middle school, there are Iliad moments but in the high school, we do excerpts of the Iliad and all of the Odyssey. And I think there's a reason for that. You know, sure, I mean, you yeah. have, you know, Cleos, you know, the glory on one hand, Nostos, homecoming on the other. The, um, the more novelistic Odyssey is much more interesting to the girls um, in a way that... Um, Does anyone do Cold Mountain by Charles Frazier? To no, but that's a, <laughs> that's a great idea. That's a great idea. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, Hmm, summer reading. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, but when I think of, so, I mean, so that's interesting in the classroom, thinking about like how stuff is constructed in order to reach the students. Um, and the classes are small enough that the teacher sees the students and sees what that's they're right. getting yeah, and um, is able to respond. Um, I do a lot of meeting with students outside of class too to help. You know, we have heterogeneous groupings generally. The famous hot seat. Yeah. Yes, the famous hot. Well, the hot seat is more for the AP students, <laughs> but for the um, for the ninth and tenth grade, like the heterogeneous groupings, meeting with those students from time to time is really important for both the ones who need remediation and the ones um, who need more, right? Sure. And so, uh, like being able to really see your students and help everybody get to their next place um, seems like an important part of it. Um, and I guess it's um, a little bit, uh, I think about Brookwood as a place where the students increasingly maybe understand a little bit more about themselves as learners and, um, and then how they can get to the next, to the next level. I think those heterogeneous groupings are really useful, sure. um, especially over years when you've been with those same people for a little while, even the people come and go, but you've been with a, a core of people uh, for a long time there's a sense of, um, you know, of acceptance of real learning differences that's A, beautiful, like really like recognizing sure. the humanity of other people um, and not dismissing them because they don't learn the same way you do. Um, and is, uh, is also, um, you know, fruitful for the class, like the outcomes of the class are better as a result for that. And of course, um, you know, good for those students. It's more like general society too, because society isn't, you know, homogeneously grouped. <laughs> yeah, just, for sure. You know. Yeah. I do think, well, maybe uh, connecting to the topic at large, but the, the sense of scale of the schools is something mm -hmm. that we share too, that the idea is that a small school is better not just small classes, but a small school because mm -hmm. of the human scale of the classes and of the whole place that you yeah. know the student as a person. Mm -hmm. And small groups certainly help. And of course, they bring out different sides of the personalities of the students. Yeah. 
but uh, of course, bringing them outside of class like you do is a way that that's also a great way to do it. But uh, but the human scale and the sense of that you have to connect with them on that personal level. Yeah, it's essential, and that's part of our approach to schooling. Like we never want to be a big school. Right. We like to use the line that. We never want to be so big that at graduation you're just handing out a diploma that you can't mm. tell a story or mm-hmm. say something personal about each. Yeah, I've, I've know, certainly never seen a, a Brookwater Avalon graduation without stories. Yeah. And uh, you uh-huh. know, that, that, that really concretizes it. But, just, mm-hmm. but that same idea does, is part of the underpinnings of how we approach things as well. Yeah. You know, the, the scale. Yeah, that does seem really important. Uh, Rich and I did a, a podcast about the, the small school as um, as sort of an important an important idea. Our way into that conversation was about COVID, um, that the um, the smallness of the school enabled us to you know stay open and do um, and and sure. um, and to do most of what we do or to do aspects of what we do and to, to be able to capitalize on what we have. That's right. um, thinking about the small school from the point of view of, you know, the individual and community, right? Like seeing the individual and, and then having the school itself function as a kind of community. Um, it seems like it, um, it provides, you know, special opportunities that way that, um, that are unavailable, you know, I, I think that's really you expand true. The, the scale. And from the, like a, in a boy's school in particular, because I think as a boy gets a little bit older, you know, there's a sense of they need some sort of healthy risk, mm-hmm. you know, and it could be, you know, so in a small school, you only have so many people in the school, so who's going to be the lead of the play? Well, it's, it's much more likely that any, any kid who goes out for the play has a chance to be the lead. You know, yeah. That's a good, healthy risk for a kid in high school. Yeah, absolutely. Or to absolutely. be the point guard, you mm-hmm. know, or the pitcher, mm-hmm. or to try to start a club, mm-hmm. right? And you have to talk it up, and it might fail. Like, these are good, healthy risks. And in a big place, you always have enough people, but in a small place, you have to step up. Yeah. I think that I think is that actually really a, helps, you know, and, and helps them to grow. And yeah, I think that's a. I think that's actually a really important. If we were going to do like planks or tenets of the um, the Avalon Tacit curriculum, certainly that risk taking would be part of it. Um, I mean, I think about like the content of a festival day at Avalon, <laughs> and there's a certain element of physical risk, uh, but a certain element of. I mean, but certainly people um, sure. performing um, in ways kind of outside their comfort zones, or people who are especially good at things get, getting a chance to to push themselves more. That's right. Um, I don't know. I think about that as um, as being part and you of hit it. both. Good. The poetry contest in front of the whole school. Yeah, is a good stretch as, as well as uh, you know. I would say it is reasonable risk on festival days, though, since we're being <laughs> For sure. going, going out in the airwaves. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Try to keep the risks reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the do you think that the um, like the poetry festival at um, at Avalon would happen um, if Avalon were a co-ed school? It wouldn't be the same because you're, the the percentage of boys who end up liking the poetry would be much smaller. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's analogous to um, if you're teaching penmanship to second graders and you have a co-ed school, yeah. a co-ed class, the girls pick it up. Their fine motor skills kick in earlier than the fine motor skills of boys, right? But if it's all boys, you know, they, it's a tighter band of difference and you're going to have more boys that, that, that recognize that it's, uh, it's all right and you don't lose your masculinity if you write neatly. Right. And... Uh, you know, and so I think with, with poetry, the ty- what the types of poems that you can select that might appeal to the masculine imagination, as well as the fact that, yeah, that's true. that the, you know, girls a little bit more, as a general rule, are verbal mm-hmm. earlier than boys are. 
Yeah. Uh, so I would, uh, my, it's funny, just, you know, my dinner table when Brookwood opened, I'd say I think it's a similar to that dynamic that happened when Joe McPherson introduced creek walking mm-hmm. to the girls. Yeah. The girls love it, but mm-hmm. it's just girls. Because right. Some just take to it, and it's not the boys being really obnoxious and like going to the floor, and the girls saying, "Forget this," you know. Mm-hmm. I think it's similar like that with uh, poetry mm-hmm. and uh, at a boys' school. Yeah. Yeah. So you end up with more, you know. Leonard Sachs in one of his talks, uh, you know, he's the great. Proponent of single-sex schools, but was that James Galway, the famous flute player, went to a boys' school, and I think it was the Bengals. I could be wrong, but he quoted some rock and roll band. It was a girl band and a good drummer, and she went to a girls' school. Hmm. And it makes sense because co-ed bands usually the flute players are girls, mm-hmm. right? And the percussion guy, you know, right, boys, right, absolutely. Right? And so I think single sex really helps with these things. You can have a more well-rounded young man, you know, sure. from an Avalon point of view because you can do these things. And, yeah. And I think that's so. true, too, thinking about, I think about the poetry class that I teach at Brookwood and what my selections are and um, how the selections are different um, on the Avalon side, like how the Avalon poetry teacher um, would, would choose different things. Um, and that would be important. Right, and that it's um, that. I mean, you want some overlap, of course, right. but um, but there's um, but there is a different sensibility that is capitalized on um, when you have the single sex school. So that seems um, that seems important. That's true. They're, they eventually they come together. But it's funny you say sensibility because I would say you know Jane Austen is great stuff. As a, as a man, I'd say Jane Austen isn't chiclet. It's just good <laughs> literature. Sure. But I wouldn't have said that in high school. <laughs> you know, I just yeah. You know, so that's not a book that I Does Jane Austen get assigned at Avalon? No, not right now. Yeah, I mean I wonder if there's anything that's that would that was that's like I that. Think it could possibly be a kind of thing where you can have an individual selected. Sure. But yeah. I don't I think that would backfire if you oh, did, yeah, I if think you so did too. it in a class yeah. at that age, it just wouldn't work. But it's a kind of thing that that uh, it's good for any man to read, uh-huh. you know. I think it's really great stuff, but it's interesting. To, you know. mm-hmm. For sure. And, I mean, the girls, meanwhile, they come into class, Willoughby, you know, they're, like, really into it sure. and very you know, very worried about the relationships and, you know, and what's happening in the text in a way that, um, that also couldn't happen um, at, I mean, probably in a co-ed environment couldn't happen uh, or wouldn't happen the same way. Not the same way. Yeah. You know, I think my experience, or history or literature class, uh, sometimes in religion classes too, the fact that it, in an all-boys environment, you can talk about certain things a little bit more. Yeah. Openly and easily. Sure. Um, it gives you these kind of zones to do that, which I think is also really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. When I think about um, the risk-taking element that you're speaking about before, um, I mean, when I look at my own children and what they've learned at Avalon, um, I think that um, that for my older son in particular, there's been um, a kind of um, of growth in his personal confidence, um, the sense that he can walk into a room and think on his feet, and um, and that he that he's sort of qualified to engage in whatever conversation is happening. Um, I think that that to a large degree comes from having been at Avalon. Hmm. And I think that that's, um, that, that, that quality, which I see in Mr. Holly and in Mr. Teleki and in you and, you know, around and, and among different, you know, different faculty members. Um, I, I yeah, think that's modeled, that's modeled yeah. in the faculty, sure. It's funny because my early memories of 
talking with Quentin. He already had it, though. <laughs> so maybe the well, apple not falling maybe far from the tree. <laughs> it's possible that it's become more appropriate. Sure. Like that, it, that he was kind of all over the place. Um, and then as he's matured in the Avalon environment, um, he's sort of seen what to do with it. I mean, he'll still make mistakes. Well, of course. But, um, but I think that, um, but I feel like that's something that I see in the Avalon boys, too. Not just in my own kid as well. Um, in a lot of his classmates, that there's a kind of confidence. I mean, they are different from each other. But there's um, there's a kind of a, a feeling of confidence that I imagine they'll carry with them outside I think so. of that. Another thing that's related, I think, is also a willingness to engage a little bit too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember when Avalon first opened in two thousand three, two thousand four. We went from grades three to nine, and almost every kid in the in the ninth grade had been at a public school. And then the year after too, we found that it took about two years before. We could just talk to them outside of class. It wouldn't be, kind of, they were trying to just ignore you. Like you're mm. part of like the, the Charlie Brown, the, uh -huh. ar, ar, you know, yes. voice in the background. Or, so just between classes, you, you know, you could say, how are you? What's happening? You can ask them something and they would stop and you'd actually have a human interaction. Yeah. And it took a, a while for that. So not mm. only the confidence, but the willingness to engage the, the teacher as a human being yeah. <laughs> outside of just the, the mere authority of, you know, mm -hmm. Um, that's a part of the culture of the school that in a human, you know, the yeah. humanity, the teacher, it's, you know, it's amazing to me that, uh, my sense is that kids coming from big schools don't really have a sense of that. Right. You know, maybe just because they just don't know the teachers as mm -hmm. well. They don't see the teachers in other environments, you know, except in the classroom. Right. But, but it's a right. good thing. You know? And we're, I mean, we're all, I mean, again, because at a small school you have many preps, um, and many responsibilities. Um, I think that, that they see us off balance, maybe more than they oh, would see that, other sure. teachers who have less to do. Um, sure. You know, I, I think that they see us off balance and, um, and then they see kind of how we respond to it. Um, and if we're doing it right, we're owning it and, uh, and yeah. then trying to, you know, push through Plus it in they whatever see the productive fatigue. way. Uh, <laughs> and they see the real thing. I mean, yeah. I, I joke in admissions because with families, especially the ones that you could tell really like the school, I always make it a point to point out that they see the teacher's rough edges in about three weeks, they know all the buttons to push, and vice versa. Mm. Oh, that's true. You know, because yeah. they, they recognize that yeah. both the, all our shortcomings in our own characters, they also see whether you're really trying. Uh -huh. But I, I think is the ultimate thing. That's a Joe McPherson thing, you know. That they see um, that you're trying? Yeah, he gave a talk at, um, years ago for the faculty. I want to say this would be the mid-90s. And if I was to title this talk, I would call it the vector of trying. But he basically said that the teaching is kind of like fishing and that, you know, you bait your hook, but the fish decides to bite mm -hmm. and you can't make the student say yes to either listening or trying or what mm -hmm. have you, you know. And then he said, you know, when you go fishing, you cast a lot of times. Mm -hmm. And so then he like, you know, a good teacher has to re-bait his hook many times to yeah. try because you try something, it doesn't work. Sure. And then he said, it's kind of like being a father. He was talking to men teachers at the time. And um, you're going to make a million little mistakes. Mm -hmm. and then he said, if you just keep trying and you keep casting, eventually, even the kids who are resisting you, both your own children and your students, he yeah. said, you know, recognize that you're putting out a real ideal and you take this seriously. And they get past your own shortcomings mm -hmm. and buy into the fact this is, you know, and it comes out okay in the end just by hanging in there. Right. You know? And I thought it was a very true thing. It's mm -hmm. kind of what we're hitting here. And I think it's okay for them to see your rough edges within limits of course right and that uh 
that those I see you're authentically trying. And I think mm-hmm. in a small school, there's no way to fudge that. Right. You know, because uh, right. they, they see the real thing pretty soon. And, you know. and I think it builds good faith, right, on, on their part, right? Like they, so. um, like they see that we're making a real effort. And, um, and then the students, um, like, they don't want to... They don't want to mess that up, but they could mess it up. And maybe when they're younger, they they might be interested in that, or maybe I don't know. In certain circumstances, yeah, sure, they might be motivated to do something there. But um, but I think overall, like if they see that you're trying, they're not gonna try to mess you up, right? They're gonna get on board. I mean, maybe that's also a Brookwood thing, as I, I think about from the the sort of stereotype about the the Brookwood versus Avalon. Uh, but it may be that the the girls give us. Um, a little bit more um, slack in that way, like they're a little bit more willing to um, to to try to help us in a way that maybe the boys are more challenging. Yeah, the boys bust the chops a little bit. But we call it the game, you know. If a class doesn't play the game at all, it's, it doesn't have enough spirit, probably. Although, yeah. the big thing is it's the the amount of energy and time you put into the game. It shouldn't be too much because then you don't get work done. And also, right. you want the the have a good class will have a certain sense of sportsmanship about the game mm-hmm. you know right it's like and also a teacher right the Absolutely. way you correct and you play the game too you know you you can't go for the jugular in the way you correct the kids because you're, you're right. all, as a teacher you become pretty aware of their own shortcomings pretty quickly and their yeah. vulnerabilities and and um so at certain points yeah that's it's, really it's, it's true it's good fun to a degree and it stays there great it actually enriches the experience yeah right? uh but it's got you know that takes a little experience and trial and error to, to, yeah. to, to play that game. Yeah, know. absolutely. Thinking about, um, about how that works. Yeah. The, um, I wanted to talk a little bit, um, also about, um, responsibility. That's something also I've seen grown in grow in both my boys. Um, this sense of themselves, um, certainly not as victims, um, also, I would say not as um, as passive. I mean, certainly as receptive, sure. um, but not as passive, but really as agents of what they want to do. And I mean, some of that is the small school environment. Like, if you don't do it, it's not going to get done, uh, which we've all experienced in different ways. But right. I think some of it is um, is larger than that. And I, I wonder if you want to talk a little bit about the um, the relationship of the school to that growth and responsibility. And sort of what that looks like on sure. from the on on the daily, you know. Well, I mean, we do think that you know education is more the lighting of a fire than the filling of a bucket, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, was it Plutarch said that, or is it sometimes people say Yates said it? <laughs> but um, and so the the idea is they have to say yes. They don't go back to baiting the hook. They have to decide to bite. You know. Right. So just in the way you pitch a lesson. Plus, I think that, that our culture of Avalon is very clear. Those of us who run the school take no pleasure in simply telling someone what to do. Mm-hmm. right? In fact, I know that my students can figure out, it frustrates me if I have to tell them certain things. I'd rather than just, you know, because I really, we don't like, uh, you know, like Gandalf says in The Lord of the Rings, I don't desire mastery, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because uh, it's ironic, you know, that mastery is teaching, but headmaster, head teacher, mm-hmm. but... Um, but in the sense of being above someone else for its own sake, I, right. I think they, they figure out that, that we're very aware that our authority with them is for their is to serve them, right? And it's for a limited time, mm-hmm. and therefore, it kind of I think it underlines the fact that they need to get some they have to need to do their part or their their freedom is accounted for. Yeah, right. Um, it's a messy business, you know. Um, schooling, especially small schooling, especially schooling where you're trying to inculcate authentic virtue because mm-hmm. it means they have to say yes. You can't just yeah. make them. 
So it's not just the right. filling of the bucket, you know. I mean, there is it. some, I mean, there is some, like, the immediate appropriate consequences. Of course. Like, there's not, yeah. there's not a kind of mincing about um, at Avalon with, um, with, with, a, you know, appropriate you know, consequences for minor things. Like often, even, even at like our sure. gala practice, I'll see, you know, give me 10. So there's, there's that, that people realize they're seen and they're responsible for what they do. And so that works on one end. And on the other end, there's this invitation that you're talking about, right? This sort of right. casting. No, and I think one of the ways you try to help them to make better decisions is, is attach consequences to bad decisions. I think that's, you know, course but ultimately that only works so well you know right and so you need a certain buy-in for, for the oh thing. for sure and uh i don't know i, I think it's our, our sense of what a human person is you know, yeah intellect and will and with a certain destiny uh you know heaven and there's a dignity there that manifests itself in this approach towards teaching approach towards correction uh, and uh I think it's more likely to get someone to really try to buy in and get them the hat. Because we were talking about it, it's helping them to use their freedom well, right? Right. So. Uh, right. I guess to get to get them to see that they have it. Sure. And then to see that it's not, you know, it, that it's, I mean, it's not freedom from, it's freedom to, right? Exactly, sure. It's the freedom to do the, um, the to do the, the right thing. I don't know. I think to... Which brings you back to, you saw a curriculum, I'm sorry for interrupting, but you know, if you read good literature, good literature is about life and kind of shows the reality that freedom is freedom to. Yeah. That a that, uh, fulfilled life involves using your freedom to choose the good. Mm -hmm. And you don't define what the good is. The good is what it is. You know? Right. Right. And, and uh, good literature isn't so overtly didactic that it's like a, like a, a simplistic fable, but it reflects mm -hmm. the complexity and the richness of life. But that's in there right. organically. You have to yeah. And literature, of course, is a safe way to make bad decisions, right? I mean, by, by, by <laughs> sure. reading, you know, some you know, cautionary History tale. History, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think about that, too. I'm, I'm in the drama class. We're, um, we're doing the last thing that we're going to do. We're doing Waiting for a Godot. And the, um, we, we talk about it as, I mean, so here's this mid-century kind of nihilistic world. And, um, and it's, it definitely resonates for us as a kind of cautionary tale. Like, what happens when God becomes Godot? You know, like, what, what happens when the transcendental signifier uh, isn't so transcendent? Like, it's not good. And, um, and there's a kind of despair there um, that we can talk about. And so I think that, um, that, that literature gives you a chance to kind of walk around in there and sort of see what it's sure. like and say, wow, I, I don't want to be there. Uh, and to think about um, what the alternatives are. And, um, and those are kind of philosophical alternatives. Um, but certainly in um, a Jane Austen novel or in The Great Gatsby or something, um, you see people making all different kinds of decisions. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know. I think that um, that you get on, you you've spoken kind of to the edge of um, this further idea about kind of what it's all for. And, um, and how this, I mean, so risk-taking, responsibility, confidence, um, that these things are about being able to live a virtuous life. Um, brief digression. Um, I wonder a little bit, too, about the, um, the Titanic Memorial um, event that happens annually. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. 
Well, starting in 2014, uh, Sam Phillips, who was uh, the admission director at Avalon, his older brother had had a, a custom of, uh, he wrote a really beautiful poem about uh, the men who gave their lives so that women and children could be saved from the Titanic. And so he, he talked Richard McPherson and starting it as an Avalon tradition, and we've been doing it ever since. And so we, uh, we pray a rosary, we read uh, Josh, uh, Josh Phillips' poem, and uh, sing some songs, and then we uh, smoke some cigars and drink a whiskey <laughs> and talk. But the toast is to those brave men. Yeah. Right? And, uh, you know, it's funny, just in, in connecting it to the big picture, I also recall there was a, a guy, his last name was, I think his first name was Tom, Tom Bandewitty. Oh, yeah. About, I guess, 10 years or so ago, he, he jumped in a, a yeah. reservoir, and I think it was a really disgusting reservoir, to save his 16-year-old son with Down syndrome yeah. on the spur of the moment. And um, it's exactly the, the, the kind of thing that we, that we hoped as men that we should be, you know. And then you backtrack from that, like, well, how was he able to give himself so totally on the spur of the moment? Right. I mean, it's probably a lifetime of making the right choices to, you know, yeah. giving himself, saying no to his immediate desire for something better. Yeah. And uh, how does that happen? And so the, an education helps you yeah. to start to try to make, <laughs> to play that game, to play that sport of trying to make the right choice. And you mm -hmm. win some, you lose some, as we know. Yeah. So and you have to connected. make decisions in real time in the same way. That's yeah. right. But it doesn't come like you're talking about virtue being like a habit, you know, right. disposition. And the more you do it, the more second nature it becomes. Right. And so it has, you have to start now, you know, if you're one mm -hmm. of the students, you're like, it's never too late. You know, really it isn't until that last moment, but uh, much better to start earlier. Right. And, and so that, yeah, that's what you... then your instincts are right. You know, the, the, more, right. the more you're formed. And I think both of our schools have this conviction that, that this struggle's worth it. Right. right? Absolutely. You know, it has a point. Yeah. Because there's the transcendent. <laughs> Yeah, the transcendent that's that's really there. Uh, so that's a it's a very fun event, and it's got the element of uh, fraternity between mm -hmm. all the guys that go. Yeah. And right now, I think it's the only actually all guy event mm. that Avalon really because everything else we have some. Yeah. Uh, which is which is nice that there's at least that one thing that you can do. You know, yeah. You know, just like there's certain things that. That, you know, I never want to go to a shower, for example. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know some people yeah. they're mixed, but yeah. Yeah, it seems to me like you don't need for that to be co-ed. Yeah, it's okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I mean, I think that too. I mean, even as as um, girls learn to become women by playing games with scissors, I don't know, but um, the uh, showers. Uh, but uh, but but <laughs> men, but boys learn to become men through um, you know seeing this whole panoply of um, of models that's right that um, I mean for in you know for my family Avalon offers these models and um, I think that um, what you're talking about too with um, people building this um, this virtue over time so that in the moment they have access to it and they're able to to see it they're able to see the right thing to do um, in the moment, and usually, um, I mean, there's a kind of connection there to, you know, again, risk, responsibility, and confidence sure, yeah. that I see, you know, coming out of Avalon, and that I'm super grateful for. Um, yeah. I'm grateful for it from the father of the Brookwood daughters as well, you know, perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think on the Brookwood side, I think it's about joy and beauty. Sure. Um, 
And then also there is, I mean, there's the Nolite to Mary. There's the, um, yeah, there is the a kind of, also for yeah, the, the, definitely it's definitely that. part mm-hmm. of it. But I think, you know, the beauty kicks in on the, on the boys' school side for as sure. well, because there's a, there's a certain grant. Like if you look at the, you know, Jim Bostic brought to the Avalon founding faculty, you look at the shields, I mean, they're attractive and they're masculine, mm-hmm. you know. I tease some of the students, you know, a real man's not afraid to match, you know. <laughs> there should be a certain aesthetic that goes with, you know. Um, and it's, it's not a lack of masculinity to kind of be refined and groomed properly and whatnot, you know. Right. It, can be, it can be taken, you know, to an absurd degree, but still, you know. Uh, but in touching your other point about um, examples, I, I do think in, that that a faculty like Avalon's can do what an extended family would do for a young man. You know, mm-hmm. like you, you'll see... You might go through a stage where you're you're arguing with your father an awful lot, but then your uncle or an older cousin sure. says the same kinds of things, a different personality, mm-hmm. you recognize the truth in what your father's saying. I, Absolutely. I think that the different the different personalities at our school function that way. Yes. Yeah. In this culture, since we unfortunately don't have the extended families that mm-hmm. we might have had. Yeah. Yeah. And it's true that the school also accomplishes that. We, did, we actually didn't talk about, really, that K through 12 aspect, um, where um, you come from a big family, you come from a small family, you, you learn how to, to operate um, and to, to, you know, to help the little boys along and to, sure. um, and to learn from the older. You know. I think that there's, um, again, because the school is small, um, that also is, um, is part of what's taught, sort of how to live in a family. Um, yeah. Also, I think just pedagogically, like you were saying about heterogeneous groupings, I mm-hmm. think that has that similar effect. You know, like if someone yeah. you, you recognize, but you know, the old one-room schoolhouse, mm-hmm. you know, and you read the letters of guys fighting in the Civil War, and you know, the person had an eighth grade education, and they write, you know, beautifully, you know, with coherent paragraphs. And, you know, they, yes. And, they, you know, well, yeah, but they're, they're, they were constantly reviewing because the person next to them, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> would have been two years younger and so you know so much of schooling is getting the basics down well yeah you know and always yeah. we always need to review. you know and as a teacher you you have to review and then you almost forget that how hard your material is because yeah. you've reviewed it so many times it becomes more second nature that mm-hmm. it's that's one of the things you have to remind yourself as a teacher that just because it's oh, yeah. so reflexive for you you know after the, if you teach the same thing. No, that's why I'm such a good poetry teacher because I have the same questions the kids have. I mean, but on a different level, <laughs> sure. it's the same yeah. questions. Like I'm seeking like the same thing. Yeah. And so that's, I mean, so that's why that works. And it's when I get complacent, when I'm teaching something else and I get complacent, that's when I have trouble. I'm not really listening. Right? I had a similar experience. Yeah. You know, I'm a history literature type, um, but working in small schools, you always need more math teachers. Mm-hmm. And I'm good up through Algebra 2 trig. <laughs> yeah. But I found that, that having to go through it systematically to learn algebra myself yeah. helped me as a teacher because mm-hmm. a lot of people need it systematically explained. Yeah. And that's how I had to learn it. So mm-hmm. the fact that I, wasn't, I wouldn't just see it. Right. And I just noticed that really gifted math students sometimes couldn't explain it to other people because they could right. just see it. You know, right. They couldn't articulate the steps. They don't have st- the steps of all yeah. become one thing. It's a very similar. Yeah. You know, but, but I do think that's, that's a real dynamic. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else that you want to add? Uh, just I'd say there are a couple of the underlying ideas that could go with you know our our culture, the Western civilization. You know, if God is kind of the great creator or artist, right? Logos. There's an order to creation. There's an order to the universe, and we think since there is, and we can figure it out, right? The world does make sense ultimately, and so it's fruitful. Things do have meaning and purpose. 
and uh, that's an underpinning of, of absolutely our and, and like I say we do articulate it sometimes because you know, especially boys they test you they push you on this stuff and you have to be ready you know? but it makes everything else possible I mean that there's a floor that's right uh, makes everything else possible and I um, mean again thinking about Gatto uh, the um, I know when there's not a floor when there's you know when there you're in an anti-foundationalist kind of situation there's um, there's no place to stand you know, and and um, and so when um, when you say, you know, the world has order, um, there are things we can know. There are, we can discover right. more. Um, I mean, that's that's um, countercultural, that's and right. it's also um, it's hugely important, especially um, now. Yeah, because you don't have modern science without this attitude that the universe does run according to certain rules that we can figure out. Because that notion is not testable scientifically, right? Know? But without it, you don't have science. Of course, it is true. And if God's, you know, is who God is, you know, then it's true, you know. Mm -hmm. So, but I think that's an important idea, you know. Also, that it's worth it, right? right? It's worth it to to try to learn these things and to try to live this way. You know, Joe McPherson said deep down, what everyone really wants is to live a noble life. And I think about starting the school. You know, and uh, Rich McPherson had the line, you know, the, the Avalon motto is Duke and Altum, put out into the deep. And when we started the school, you know, Avalon and Brookwood, the schools, really, we didn't know how deep, deep was. You know? And we found out, <laughs> especially the recession of 2008 and, and Avalon having moved four times, that deep is pretty deep, right? And I like to say that I'm, it's a good thing um, I didn't know what I was getting into with this whole adventure because I never would have done it. On the other hand, I'm glad we've done it, right? It is worth it. And I think that comes through, I mean, it's any human life. It's not necessarily starting a school, but a life well lived, you know, through their vocation to, uh, to be a child of God, through, through our, our family life and work, uh, that it's worth it, right? Despite all the daily uh, pinpricks and falls and, and ways we fall short. And so I think that under, underlies everything at Avalon and Brookwood and uh, it's something that I'm grateful for. Thank you so much for talking with me today. I Thank really you. appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Brookwood and Avalon Life of the Mind podcast. I'm Sherry Walsh here in episode seven with Kevin Davern. Our producer is Quentin Walsh. Our theme music is by Fabian Tell. Views expressed are the participants' own.